The following resource is from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So last week, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think I promised that I'd get through the whole chapter, did I? I said I was hoping to. Well, I didn't get through the whole chapter, so I think uh, those of you that know me, there was zero chance of that happening anyway. But, um, you know, I do want to uh, try to finish uh, the overview. And God willing, next week I want to circle back and uh, draw from uh, uh, John Owen's mortification of um, sin uh, as a special study, zeroing in on, on Romans 8, 13, and 14. So let's go ahead and uh, take the handout as I've given you, and we'll walk through it. I shortened the front end so that we could get through the material and then pick up somewhere around verse 17, 18 is about where we were last time. All right, Romans 6, 7, and 8 uh, in general are what I would call the sanctification chapters in the book of Romans. Uh, they address the issue of how do we who have been justified by faith, how do we deal with the problem of sin in our lives? Shall we just go on sinning that grace may increase, Paul says uh, in Romans 6, by no means. And then he gives us the doctrine of spiritual unity in Romans 6, that we were uh, by the Spirit baptized into a spiritual oneness with Christ in his death and his resurrection. We were baptized by the Spirit into his death. We died with Christ to sin. And we were spiritually raised from the dead with Christ into a new life. Those two are the categories, the two categories of sanctification. Sanctification has a negative side in which we are mortifying sin, putting sin to death. We are not uh, doing certain things. And it has a positive side, walking in newness of life. And that's uh, in Romans 6.4. And so all of Romans 6 gives, Romans 6 gives a clear pattern, a, a beautiful kind of perfect vision of the fact that having become Christians, having been justified by faith, we are forever set free from sin. And what that means is we are not slaves to sin. We have been rescued from the dominion of darkness, Colossians tells us, brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And in that kingdom, Sin has no compulsion over us whatsoever. We are able to say no to every temptation. We're able to say no to sin. We don't ever need to sin again. Sin shall not be our master. We're not under law, but under grace. It's a whole new life that we have. It's a very pure vision of separation and uh, purity from sin. But then in Romans 7, we find also the reality of indwelling sin in the mortal body, in the body of sin. And that leads to uh, the bitter, bitter struggle with sin, uh, that sin dwells in us. Romans 7, 21 through 25 says, So I find this law at work when I want to do good. Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the flesh a slave to the law of sin. So that's that struggle we have. Earlier in Romans 7, he had said, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. The very thing I hate, I do. The thing I want to do, I do not do. That's the battle that we have, Romans 7. Then in Romans 8, we have the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and the ultimate, the final triumph. And that's what we're walking through now. The power of the Spirit and the fact that we are promised complete and total victory. All right, we began in Romans 8, through 1 through 4. Can someone read that for us? Romans 8, 1 through 4. Wonderful. So Romans 8 has a tri- uh, kind of a, a triumphant sound to it. It begins with the statement that there's no condemnation. It ends with uh, a statement that there'll never be any separation between us and Christ, uh, the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no separation. So we really could say Romans 8 was given to give us assurance. It was given to give us confidence, but also to give us the, uh, the sense of the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, by the Spirit, are able to walk in newness of life. By the Spirit, we are able to meet fully meet the requirements of the law. We are able to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're able to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're able to walk in newness of life by the Spirit, so the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this uh, statement, there's no condemnation, 
is very powerful. We are not going to hear the words on Judgment Day from Jesus. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. We're not going to hear that said about us. We're not condemned now. There are people that are unregenerate and walking around under the condemnation of God. And all they're doing, according to Romans 7, every day is storing up more wrath against themselves. That's all. They're under the wrath of God now. Uh, John 3.36 teaches this. Uh, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. They're already under the wrath of God. All right? But once you come to Christ, you're out from under the wrath of God. There's no condemnation for you now. And there will be no condemnation on Judgment Day. But this is not true of everyone. It's only those uh, true of those who are in Christ Jesus. And the proof of whether you're in Christ Jesus or not is what kind of life are you living? How are you, how are you living life? Do you see evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life? Uh, what is the law of the Spirit of life? And so he begins to talk about the Spirit-filled life. And we get to Romans 8, 5 through 8, two different ways to live. The sinfully-minded way versus the spiritually-minded way. Someone read that for us, Romans 8, 5 through 8. All right, so the, the whole thing is two different realms. We're either in the flesh or in the spirit. In the flesh or in the spirit. Manifestation of those two conditions, the state of the mind, what you think about. Inevitably, bad living comes from bad thinking, thinking first. If you're thinking, thinking wrongly, you'll live wrongly. Uh, if you're thinking rightly, you'll live rightly. And so we can always go back, first and foremost, to the... the the mindset, and he says there's the mind of the flesh versus the mind of the spirit. And these are conditions. We're either in the flesh or in the spirit. In the flesh means unregenerate. In the flesh means dead in our transgressions and sins, even while we're biologically alive. In the spirit means converted. We're born again. We're, we're Christians, all right? Uh, the basic principle, how you think is how you live. And the two ultimate destination is death versus life, or ultimately hell versus heaven. Two experiences here on earth, a death-like experience versus an experience of life and peace. Uh, as I mentioned last time, though I took it off the handout, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is a very good example of what it means to live the life of the flesh or the life of death even while you live. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Uh, like the rest, we are by nature objects of wrath. That's the life of the flesh. It's a mindset and a pattern of living in the pattern of the world. Um, and that's the death-like experience versus an experience of life and peace, a spirit-filled life. Central to this, of course, are uh, uh, the, uh, the mind, the mindset, of the flesh is hostile to God. What does that mean to you? That the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. Hostile to God. Okay. Resisting, fighting, opposing. It's, it's, there's an enmity, a hatred uh, inside them for God and for the things of God. It's not equally developed in everyone. But that's what Paul's saying here. The mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not to submit to God's law. It's actually impossible for it to do so. Uh, that's what he's saying. That's the mind of the flesh. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Nothing that a person, an unregenerate person does, pleases God. And that's what he's saying here. And we already saw this in Romans 3. There's, they, there are no good works. They're, they're not seeking God. They're not pleasing God. Nothing. They have no good works. And nothing they do is pleasing to God. Um, However, you are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit, all right? The, this is a domain issue. Again, I, do, I mentioned this last time. The NIV has control language here. You, however, are not controlled by the uh, sinful nature, but by the spirit. That is not what the Greek says. It's just in. You are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. It's a status of, of he's saying you are not unregenerate. You are regenerate, but he uses the language of being in the Spirit. You are regenerate if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So if you have the indwelling Spirit, you are in the Spirit. If you do not have the indwelling Spirit, you are not in the Spirit. You are in the flesh. That's what he's saying here. And, if, and he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, 
does not belong to him. So we talked about this last time, very significant. What does he mean? Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the indwelling Spirit has an influence on the person, similar to but different than a demon who's possessed like the demoniac of the Gadarenes. Uh, the difference would be, I think, that the demon violates the human being's natural mental processes, basically has hijacked the person's personality, has hijacked their mindset, and forces them to do things they would never ordinarily do. Again, the demoniac of the gathering is a clear example. He was naked. He was in the tombs. He was cutting himself with rocks. He couldn't be bound by chains. He was like an animal. He was... Yeah, like Nebuchadnezzar when he was like an animal. He was, uh, but he wasn't demon-possessed. He was, he was mentally ill. God struck him with a mental illness. So there's no indication of demonic activity there. But he was like an animal. Demonic of the category. Yeah. So, however, the Holy Spirit is, is the embodiment inside us of Christ's therapeutic work inside us. He's constantly healing. He's a healing. He's a healer. So therefore, he's not going to violate your mental processes. He's going to heal them. Does that make sense? He's going to get you to think properly and well. And that's why you're able to sin with the indwelling spirit living inside you. Now, to some degree, I would think you would be shocked at that, right? Horrified. Me? Sin with the spirit living inside me? But you've been doing it since the moment you were converted. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? But I've said before that, that, that unglorified Christians are the weirdest thing there is, all right? Because we are inconsistent. And the Holy Spirit's inside us, but He doesn't force us to do the right thing. But He is constantly there. He's right there with us. That's the sense of dwelling. And we'll talk more about it in a minute. But it says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are in the, in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And if the Spirit isn't dwelling in you, we said last time, you're not a Christian. You're not born again. So we should not imagine that there are justified people who are born again, but they have to go get the Holy Spirit, like a Pentecostal uh, experience, this kind of thing. They don't have the Spirit. They've got to go get baptized in the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, this verse says you're not a Christian. If, conversely, you are a Christian, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's the key to this whole chapter and the teaching he's giving. If Christ is in you, and notice the terminology here. He mentioned it last time. In the Spirit, he says, Spirit of God dwelling in you, having the Spirit of Christ, and then Christ is in you. You see how it's just four different ways. Is there a difference between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ? This should be the easiest question of the night, all right? Is there a difference? No, there is no difference between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. How many persons of the Trinity do we want here, all right? Let's, let's say, all right, there is no difference. But then, is there a difference between the Spirit and Jesus? They are different persons of the Trinity. And yet he says, if the Spirit is in you, Christ is in you. Think about that. It is by the Spirit that Christ is in us. The Spirit delivers Jesus to the individual believer. That's who, what the Spirit does. The Spirit ministers Jesus. So you remember that moment when um, <clears throat> Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And he said, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you all this time? What does he mean by that? Is he claiming to be the Father? Okay, is he claiming when he says, show us the Father and that will be enough, and he says, don't you know me? Is Jesus claiming to be the Father? No. no, but what did Philip say? Show us the Father. Is he claiming to be the one to do that? Yes, he is the glory of the invisible God. And it is by Jesus that you see the glory of the Father. But he's not claiming to be the Father. The same thing could be said of the second and third person of the Trinity. Imagine saying to the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, show us Jesus. He would have the same reaction. What do you think I'm here for? I'm here to minister Christ to you. I'm here to bring Christ to you. And so he's able to say, Jesus is able to say, the resurrected Jesus is able to say to the church that he's about to send all over the world into every 
tribe and language and people and nation. And surely I will be with all of you every day to the end of, end of time. How is he going to do that? By the Spirit. It's by the Spirit of Christ. But you see the, the language here. It's, it's interchangeable. It is Spirit, then Spirit of God. It is Spirit of Christ. And then it just says Christ is in you. And that's how, how the language goes here. If Christ is in you, then, he says in verse 10, although the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is life because of righteousness. We didn't talk about this verse at all last time. What does that mean? The body is dead because of sin, spirit life because of righteousness. He does, but we still have this mortal body, this body of sin, body of death. And so that is the problem. That's why you're struggling with sin, because you got this mortal body, this body of sin, body of death. Um, and although that is true, although the body is dead because of sin, yet you have a principle of eternal life through the Holy Spirit inside you um, because of righteousness. That means the imputed righteousness of Christ. So that's for Christians. You have the, the indwelling spirit as a deposit or, a, or depo guaranteeing our full inheritance. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What does that mean? Now he's talking about our mortal bodies. What is he saying there? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead, same thing, will also give life to your mortal bodies. Yeah, ultimately, yes, and that's the hope, hope that we have. But I think you're right, brother. I think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about our own bodily resurrection from the dead in the pattern of Christ. And the same God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise you from the dead. So the indwelling Holy Spirit is proof that someday you will be raised from the dead. It is proof of Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And so the Holy Spirit is proof of that. That's what he's getting at. Let me read the comments I, I gave here. What domain are you in? Are you in Adam or in Christ? Are you in the flesh or in the spirit? I already said the NIV. We'll skip that. In the flesh means unconverted, still under the law, still in Adam, under the tyrannical reign of sin and Satan and death, still dead in transgressions and sins even while you live, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. In the spirit means converted, not under the law, but under grace. Now in Christ's kingdom, now under his kingly reign, made alive in Christ with a new heart and a new nature. Paul makes this clear assertion. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You have been decisively rescued from Satan's dark kingdom, brought into the kingdom of the beloved son, Colossians 1.13. Central to that rescue is the transformation of the heart and the mind by the Holy Spirit. Can someone read Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27? Sweet verses here. Tremendous, tremendous verses. And this is really what Romans 8 is getting at. These are promises that the Lord is making to his people. I'm going to put, uh, give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'm going to remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now, you need to understand the use of the word flesh there is different than we use it in other places. He just means a living heart, one capable of responding like a living being to God, whereas before you had a dead heart a heart of stone. So the contrast is stone versus flesh is dead versus alive. I'm going to give you an alive heart and spirit toward God. You are now alive toward God. That's what he means by remove a heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put my spirit in you and I'm going to move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Do you not see how that syncs up with Romans 8, 4? He says it is, it is by the Spirit that the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us. I'm going to move you to obey me. Now, what does that mean to you? How do you understand, I'm going to put my Spirit in, in you, and He is going to move you to obey my laws. Move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Okay. All right. Do you sense a, a kind of a forcefulness here in this language? I'm going to move you to obey me. What do you, how do you see that as forceful? In a good way. I don't mean it in a bad way. But there's a forcefulness on this person so that they are now compelled. What are your thoughts of that? This move you to obey. You're going to want to do it. Okay. 
Do you remember when the Apostle Paul was talking about um, uh, his own mission and he was going to Jerusalem and fully expected to be persecuted, arrested there? He said, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are waiting for me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task of testifying to the gospel. All right, let's go back to the beginning. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. What did he mean by that? Compelled by the Spirit. He wouldn't do it. He didn't believe it wasn't essential. Okay. He believed that it should. Okay. But he couldn't not. I love that double negative. Thank you, brother. He couldn't not. <laughs> so the Spirit not, is not giving Paul a choice. You get a sense that? He doesn't have a choice in the matter. He does. He's making a legitimate choice. But what he's saying is, I can do nothing else other than this. And the Holy Spirit, you know, and he says in another place, um, woe to me if I do not preach. He says, like, I, something will happen to me if I don't preach. I, I have to preach. Jeremiah talked about this. You know, I didn't want to do my ministry anymore. Remember, Jeremiah is like, I'm, I'm done. I'm done speaking about Yahweh to these Jews. Because, you know, it was a terrible ministry. You think about it. He's going to downtown Jerusalem and telling them they're all sinners and they're going to be judged by, Be by Nebuchadnezzar and the only hope they have is to surrender and go out and, and yield to Nebuchadnezzar. That's your message? Imagine that. Imagine that's your ministry. Don't trust in the temple of the Lord. Surrender to Nebuchadnezzar and God will save you. It's like, would you want to keep preaching that? He didn't want to anymore. He said, I can't do it anymore. But if I shut my mouth, the word of God burns up within me. I am compelled. There's nothing I can do to stop it. I cannot hold it in. I think Paul was saying the same thing. He said, I'm compelled by the Spirit. Now you go back to this, and I'm just making it more universal. The Holy Spirit is moving you in every respect in the Christian life. In your marriage, in your parenting, in your prayer life, in your financial life, in your church life. He's moving you to follow His decrees and carefully keep His laws. That's the Spirit-filled life. And it's in Ezekiel around the time of the exile to Babylon. So this is the prediction of the new covenant. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He moves you. It's a forceful thing. It's the very thing that Romans 8, 4 says. And the key is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Spirit dwells within us. All right, go to the handout where I talk about the indwelling, indwelling trinity. This is really quite remarkable. You got the Spirit living in you. Someone read John 14, 16, and 17. You see that last little phrase? He, the Spirit, will be in you. All right, someone read the Son passage, John 14, 20. Again, look at that last phrase. On that day you'll realize that I, Jesus, am in you. So that's indwelling Jesus now. And then someone read John 14, uh, 23. Who's the we in that sentence? the Father and the Son. So that's the indwelling Father now, you see? The indwelling Father and Son and Spirit in these verses, living inside us. That should just consider, we should consider that an awesome thought. You have the indwelling Trinity. That's what Jesus is teaching here in John's Gospel. That's effectively what Paul's teaching in Romans 8. You have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit dwelling inside you. What of the body? We've just covered it, but I'll just read what I wrote. The physical body is under a death sentence. Cells are constantly dying, only imperfectly replaced. Death is at work in us constantly. We're not, if we're not of the final generation, it is appointed to us to die. This is the death penalty for Adam's sin. So the body of sin, the mortal body, will continue to be a problem. Um, I must say that's putting it mildly. I mean, this is the problem, all right? It's going to continue to make life hard for you, all right? I mean, you think about it, um, and we've seen this a number of times. We've seen godly people go through the death process, and it's hard to die, and they're in a lot of pain. They're in, a, they're in pain day after day after day. It's just hard to be evidently spirit-filled. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's hard to display those attributes when you're hurting physically. So the body seems to be at odds with your desire to be that kind of a person. And you have to overcome the physical pain of the cancer or whatever it is that's taking you out of the world in order to be cheerful, in order to be kind, in order to be loving. It's just a battle. So that's just one example of the battle, etc. Body of sin will continue to be a problem, but God's grace extends even to the body. He has plans to raise it up, 
Like Philippians 3.21 says, Christ, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So therefore, we have an obligation, as we mentioned last week, a debt. We're debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Um, we don't owe the flesh anything. The flesh won't come to you with any compulsion, say, you owe me five sins today. You're low on your sin quota. All right, you don't ever need to sin again. That's Romans 6. First Peter puts it this way. You have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. What does he mean by that? You spent enough time in the past doing the sins that pagans choose to do. What's the significance of that? You spent enough time in the past doing that. Not missing anything. You don't owe it anything. You don't owe the pagans who, are, who want you to sin with them anything. You can say no to sin. That's Romans 6. You've, you're not a debtor to the flesh to live according to it. That's not at all the case. Now we get to the mortification passage. Someone to read Romans 8, 13, 14. So this was essential, the slaying temptation class that I was teaching. Uh, and this is the, the handout that is the basis of this that I um, gave to you guys tonight. Um, this is the battle. This is the, the, this is the essence of negative sanctification. This is the essence. Putting sin to death by the Spirit. Killing sin. Um, and if you live according to the flesh, you will die, meaning eternally you'll go to hell. If you live that life and you're not converted out of it, that's the life that leads. That's, that's the wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. That's the road that leads to destruction. It's the life of the flesh, the life of sin. It's not the mortified life. It's not the indwelling spirit putting sin to death. That is not that life. If you're on the narrow road that leads to life and only a few find it, that is the life of mortification. See, that's the life in which the spirit leads you to put sin to death by the spirit. That's what he does. All who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So this is a joint effort. And we're going to talk about this, God willing, next week on the uh, John Owen stuff. But you are to work together with the Spirit to mortify. How do you see that, the joint effort in Romans 8, 13 and 14? Absolutely. So in Romans 8, 13, who kills the, the sin? Just look at the verse. Who puts the sin to death? We do. It says it. But if by the Spirit you, you put to death the deeds of the body. Right, that's the next part. You do it by the Spirit. So I think Romans 7 is about sanctification unaided. Without the power of the Spirit, it's impossible. Just as justification by the law is impossible, sanctification by the law, I would say, unaided. Without the Spirit's help, you're on your own, you cannot be sanctified. That's what Romans 7 is saying. But here Romans 8, 13 says that you have power to kill sin but you can only do it by the Spirit. How does that work? How, how, do, how do we, by the Spirit, mortify? How do we put sin to death by the Spirit? Amen. And so we're going to talk more about this next time, but, you know, uh, that, that's it. So let's, let's, uh, let's keep moving in the handout, and then we'll get into more of this next week. Uh, mortification of the deeds of the body, the misdeeds. To mortify means to kill, to put to death those deeds. Individual moments of temptation can and must be killed. Categorical sins can never be killed. All right, what do I mean by that? You cannot kill a sin category. Like, how would, you, how would you all like to take pride out? So that you don't have any trouble with pride. You'll have trouble with other things, but just... To, wouldn't you, if you could see a sin list, you would probably, if you could choose any of them, it would be good that you knew that you would never sin that category ever again. I'm telling you, that's the very thing that cannot happen in the Christian life. Because if you knew from God that that category of sin was now had a big red X in it, you would never need to be vigilant in that area again. Wouldn't you agree? That area could not, could not cause you any trouble again. But is there any such area for which you never need to be vigilant in that area again? I would no. say no. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. What does that mean to you? If you think you're standing firm, take heed. What does take heed mean to you? Be careful, be vigilant, you're still in danger. So you can't relax in any category. So that's why I say there's no category you can take out. But individual temptations are momentary, 
They're circumstantial. They're right now going on like Joseph and Potiphar's wife. You can and must kill those. And as many temptations in certain categories as you can kill, that category can be weakened, greatly weakened. So it doesn't cause you the kind of trouble it used to. But you still have to be vigilant in that area, like an ex-alcoholic kind of thing. Still an alcoholic, they would think that way. It could always happen. I could get, I could go right back into that lifestyle again, but it's been 17 years since I had a drink kind of thing. So they would have to say that category has been significantly weakened by putting many, many, many temptations to death in that category. So we'll talk more about this next time. You can weaken categories. You should weaken every category. As many as you're aware of, weaken them by saying no to sin, by, by uh, the Spirit put to death. So we'll talk more about that. The stakes are infinitely high. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That means if you're not mortifying, you're on the road to hell. We're not, this is not like your best life now or any of that. We're not talking about that at all. We're talking about heaven or hell and the roads that lead to one or the other. So what would you say then to kind of your average churchian that doesn't know any of this stuff and isn't living any differently than the world, honestly, and doesn't even, isn't aware of this, but they prayed a prayer 23 years ago and got water baptized six months after that. What would you say to such a person? Are they fine? They don't need to worry about any of this? I would say they're not fine. I would say they're in great danger. Your assurance should be in proportion to your mortification. Let me say that again. I think your assurance should be in proportion to your mortification. You know what's going on secretly and privately. If you are, by the Spirit, putting to death sin, then your assurance should be healthy. And if you're not, I don't know on what basis you have assurance that you're converted. So this is not an option. This is not like extra Christianity or whatever. This is what it means to be a child of God. How do I know that? The link between verse 13 and 14, as I pointed out last week. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. The context here is led to mortify, right? Isn't that what we're talking about? Those who are led by the Spirit to mortify, these are the sons of God. These are the only ones that are the sons of God. That's the connection between verse 18 and uh, uh, sorry, verse 13 and 14. Only those led by the Spirit of God into killing uh, the deeds of the body really are sons of God. It's not an option. Mortification of the deeds of the flesh is essential to the Christian life. So therefore, we're led by the Spirit into battle. Uh, it's related to these verses in Isaiah. Someone read Isaiah 35 and 30. There's two verses in Isaiah. So in my mind, I put those two together. There is a kind of a mystical, invisible pathway of holiness that the Lord stretches out before you. And then from the other verse, you hear a, a, a voice in your mind saying, this is the way, walk in it, and it's a way of holiness. And that has to do, that's kind of old covenant language of mortification there, throwing away your idols, like disgusting, nasty things. You just throw them away, that's the language of mortification. That's the life that we're talking about here. That's the language of putting sin to death. The Spirit leads in the battle by identifying sin patterns and then lifting up scriptures relevant to them. So we'll talk more about this next week. Spirit leads in a battle by giving Christians zeal for holiness and an eagerness to make things right. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Then he says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, selves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. So 2 Corinthians 7.11 talks about an eagerness and an earnestness after holiness. In this particular case, He's dealing with the Corinthians who he's written very sharply to and strongly about sin in the church. And he says, look at the result. You guys are on it now. You're zealous now. You're eager for holiness now. That's how it should be. That's the eagerness I want to see in you. So that's what the Holy Spirit does in us. He makes us hungry, hungry for holiness. I get the image of Jesus cleansing the temple sometimes. You know what I mean? Remember that story in John chapter 2? Where Jesus goes in, looks around, then sits down, takes the time to make a whip. Remember that whole thing? He's kind of braiding this whip, maybe take him an hour or whatever. He's just thinking about it. He's not, it's not an act of passion here. And then he gets up and he gets to business. <laughs> I mean, it's, and, and you could see that like in your heart, in your brain. It's like, God, come and do that. Just clean it out. It's like, all right. 
because that's the kind of cleaning that we need, the kind of cleansing that we need, the corruptions that are inside. So that's the holiness. We'll talk more about this next week. All right, let's go through the rest of the chapter now at the time that's left. Got about 20 minutes left. The rest of the Romans 8 is confidence and final glory. So before I go in, why would it be helpful to know, for you to know, that in the end you're going to win in this whole struggle against sin? In the end, you are absolutely going to be completely more than a conqueror. Soldiers who are fighting, if they know they're going to win, they fight a little harder. I agree. I agree. They fight harder, they fight better. Absolutely. The rest of this chapter, I think, is written to give us confidence. And, and more besides, there's other things in this chapter, but ultimately that God has predestined you to final, complete, absolute conformity to Christ and glory. And nothing's going to stop it. Nothing can separate you from the electing, sovereign, powerful, transforming love of God. And so if you know that, you're going to fight better. You're going to put sin to death by the Spirit better. And you need to because it's up to you. You have to obey. You have to follow. And so you will if you are convinced you're going to win. All right, so let's walk through that. Uh, first of all, present sufferings are temporary, but the coming glory is eternal. Someone read 8:15 8, 8, through 18. All right, so we're, um, I hope to go through these verses more in depth in the future, but right now I'll just give you a bit of an overview. First of all, you did not receive the Spirit, an external Spirit coming to you, the Holy Spirit, or any kind of Spirit, like a demon or anything else, or a spirit like team spirit or whatever. I don't know how to understand it, but you didn't receive a spirit like that that makes you a slave again to fear. So he's talking about a servile terror of a wrath-filled God who you can never do enough to please. That is the God of Martin Luther before he discovered the gospel, I believe. If you know anything about Luther, that's who he was, that's absolutely who he was serving. What is it that made him go in the monastery? An electrical storm, and he thought he wouldn't get out of the field alive. And he was afraid of being struck by lightning and sent to hell. That's what motivated him to join a monastery. What was his life like in the monastery? Maybe you don't know, but it was, it was, it was bondage, constant bondage to fear. He was terrified of God sending him to hell. And he was doing everything he could to avoid that, to the point where finally he said, love God, I hate him. I hate a God who would damn me to eternity in suffering for my sins. And so that was, that was, so picture that. You did, Paul said, you didn't receive that spirit that makes you live a life like that. That's not what we're talking about. Instead, what did you get? You received a spirit of adoption. So what's the, the significance of that, of being adopted, the spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father? So, Jim, how does it cause us to live differently when we know that we're a child and not a slave? We know we're loved and we're not uh, in, in constant servitude, mm -hmm. but we are under that authority. Would you say that part of it is a sense of security, that we have a permanent place in the family and nothing's going to change that? Absolutely. I think so, whereas this other is that at any moment you might be condemned. And so he said, look, we didn't receive that. There's no condemnation. There's no servile terror here. That's not how we're mortifying. We're not mortifying like we're slaves to fear. All right? But rather, we mortify because we have a love for the Father, because we love our Heavenly Father, and the Spirit's inside us, and we're crying, Abba, Father, while we put sin to death, because we want to please Him. That's the, the desire we have. And the Spirit is testifying with our spirit that we're God's children. He's telling us that we're the children of God. And therefore, we're heirs. So this, that, that confidence, you are going to be infinitely rich. You're an heir. You're, you're coming into your inheritance. You haven't gotten to it yet, but you are going to be eternally rich in glory. And so you're an heir with, of God and co-heirs with Christ. If you share in his sufferings. Now, I talked last time about sufferings that are common to all human beings, which are tied to the mortal body, I think, like pain of pain of cancer, things like that. That's suffering every human being shares. I don't think that's the view here. There are specific sufferings that he calls sharing in Christ's sufferings. Do you see that? There's a specific suffering that Christ suffered. And I think those, the sufferings of Christians are uh, sufferings for holiness and sufferings for the spread of the gospel. 
Those are unique to Christians. Non-Christians don't have those. Jesus suffered when he was tempted, Hebrews tells us. The text is right there on the page. So if you suffer when you're tempted, okay, that means you're enduring under the temptation and not yielding to it, right? So the quick way to get out of the temptation is to yield to it, right? If you don't yield to it, the temptation may for a while get stronger. It may be more persistent, may be harder. And it will take suffering to say no to that sin. See what I'm saying? But if you join in Jesus' sufferings, then you'll share in his glory. If you will, I think it's picturing mortification. It is hard to mortify. It's hard to put sin to death, that there's suffering involved. But if you share in Christ's suffering, you'll also share in his glory. And then he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What does that mean to you? Our present sufferings aren't even worth compared comparing with the glory. I mean, that's a good point. And Paul says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he says, um, uh, our sufferings are light and momentary, which definitely harmonizes with 8.18 here. What does he mean by light and momentary? It's just not, yeah. I mean, the glory that will be revealed, and I, I love this statement in us, we will ourselves be glorious. It's not the glory that will be revealed to us, as some translations actually have it, but I think it's a glory that will be revealed in us because Paul, in a few verses, is going to talk about those whom he justified, he also glorified, which literally means makes glorious. So there's a suffering that will be revealed in us. We will be glorious. And it's not even worth comparing. The suffering we're going through isn't even worth comparing with that. It's light, momentary, and small. By the way, I had a meditation earlier today. Never noticed this before. It had to do with that famous statement in Matthew 25. I'm, te I'm teaching through the... Uh, Jack uh, uh, is in the men's Bible study gym as well on Thursdays. Um, the sheep and the goats and all that. Well, before that, you got the five talents, the two talents, and the one talent. There's a bunch of parables that he tells in there getting ready for the end of the world. And you know that one that he says to the five-talent guy who got five more. He's got ten talents. Remember what he said? He said, well done, good and faithful servant. What did he say next? You've been faithful with a few things. The word few just came alive for me. It's like, yeah, you did a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Do you see? Few gets you many. That's disproportionate. A little bit of suffering gets you a lot of glory here, guys. Think about that. It's not even worth comparing. It's disproportionate. So I love that. You've been faithful with a few things. That's what Judgment Day will be. Those are your good works. Yeah, you did a few good things. I'm going to put you in charge of some eternal things. That's pretty awesome. It's like, well, wait a minute. Is he going to minimize? No, he's just going to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah, you did some things for me. All right. Well done. <laughs> you know, I just think it's amazing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. All right. Thank you, Lord. I, didn't you mean to say many and now I'm going to give you some more? You know, no, no a few. Anyway. But again, that's our, our present sufferings aren't even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, the glory of the resurrection body. Someone read 19 to 25. Thank you so much. Let me just read my notes here so we can, we can finish the chapter and then we'll dig into details, God willing, next time. Paul expands his vision to encompass, encompass all of physical creation. The entire universe, he says, is held in a form of bondage until God's plan for the redemption of his elect is complete. He speaks about the sons of God being revealed. That is glorification. That's our resurrection. We are going to be revealed, it says, the glorious resurrection of the body. He says that the creation's enslaved to a principle of futility or corruption. This is tied to the curse on Adam. Curses is a ground because of you and the thorns and thistles. Paul says of all, crea all creation, all of creation is held in a form of slavery until the end of the age. But it's held in hope because God's plan includes the redemption of the universe. Both the universe and the children of God will be brought into full radiant glory. That's where we're heading. The new heavens, new earth, and new us, new bodies. That's the future. In the meanwhile, creation is groaning, Paul says, under the bondage of decay. He calls it childbirth. And he uses the analogy of childbirth because it's pain now leading to something good later. I think that's why he uses the language of childbirth. Pain now, but it leads to something good 
later, like Jesus said, a woman giving birth has pain because of the childbirth, but after the child is born, she forgets her pain because of the joy that a child is born into the world. I think Paul has the same idea. Uh, I think that's the, it's not worth comparing with what we're getting. Yes, there's pain to go through, but look where we end up when all said and done. That's what he's getting at. It should give us incredible hope. <clears throat> so we Christians also are groaning. Our mortal bodies are what's causing us all the trouble. But someday we'll receive glorious resurrection bodies, the redemption of the bodies, the consummation of our adoption as sons of God. It's interesting. It's almost like the adoption proceedings have been initiated but not completed. So you're like, well, wait a minute. Am I or am I not a son of God or a daughter of God? You are. But your adoption is completed by your resurrection. That's the language he uses. The redemption of the body equals our adoption as sons. That's the language he uses here. So we are going to be completed as adopted sons and daughters by our resurrection. In this hope we were saved. Um, uh, that, that is, we have a feeling of hope. Now, hope is essential to the fighting. It's just like you said, brother, uh, we soldiers fight better filled with hope. If you know where we're heading and you're filled with that, hope is energetic, right? There's an energy to hope. And if you, if you have that hope, you will fight better. You'll mortify better. One of Satan's number one deceptions is to make you hopeless in a specific sin area, right? Oh, you'll never, you'll never be able to defeat us. This. This, this is just part of your life. There's nothing you can do about it. That's a lie. Someday that sin's going to lie dead under my feet. So I'm going to fight it today. Do you see how it works? But he doesn't. He wants to get you hopeless, so you give up because that serves his purpose. So you should be filled with hope. We are filled with hope. And what is hope? It's a feeling that the future is bright based on the promise of God. Confidence that the future is bright. So in that hope we're saved. Hope that is seen is no hope at all. We don't need hope in heaven. All right? We will have everything we we're hoping for. And that helps us slay temptations now. All right, now the Spirit intercedes for it. I'll just read, it, read this. It says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we don't know what, to, what we ought to pray for, uh, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit uh, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. So this is really very deep. He says in another place, no one knows the mind of a man except the spirit of a man within him. So it is, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So the spirit, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians, searches the mind of God, even the deep things of God. The spirit knows the mind of God, the eternal, infinite mind of God completely. The spirit, we're told here, also knows us. He searches our hearts and minds and he weds together our needs with God's eternal plan. And he does it in intercession. He searches the mind of God, he searches our needs, and he puts the two together and prays for us with groans that words cannot express in deeper communication than we can possibly imagine. So the Spirit is interceding for us. That's an amazing thing. I think it's an underdeveloped theme. Most of us don't think of the Spirit praying for us. We think of praying in the Spirit, and that's good. That's in Ephesians. We should pray in the Spirit on all occasions. But this verse is saying the Spirit prays for us. He's interceding for us, and He always does it in accordance with the will of God. Meaning what? Means He'll get what He asks for. He's praying in accordance with the will of God. And then we find out what that means. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. So to link the two together, verse 27 and verse 28. The Spirit intercedes for us in accordance with God's will. We could almost take the word will out and put God's purpose. The Spirit intercedes for us in accordance with God's purpose. And God works in the world in accordance with God's purpose. And what is God's purpose? Our final glorification. Our final glorification. That's the purpose. The Spirit intercedes for us in accordance with the will of God or the purpose of God. And God sovereignly orchestrates events on planet Earth for his final purpose, for the elect, for those whom he foreknew. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those whom God foreknew, this is his purpose, that's the link in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of, or likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8, 28 through 30. 
How long do you think it would take to adequately explain those three verses? Do you have any sense of that? Do you think we can do it in one minute? I don't think we could do it, I don't know, in one year. That's almost, that's hyperbole, but I almost feel that that's probably true. All right, Uh, these are just some of the greatest verses in the Bible. They're deep, too. I was talking to a brother today, knowing I was going to teach this tonight, today, about the topic of foreknowledge, all right? You need to understand, foreknowledge is not God knowing about you. It is God knowing you. What's the difference between those two, by the way? The difference between God knowing about you and God knowing you. The second is much more intimate. Absolutely. One way you matter, the other way you don't. Right. Do you remember when, you know, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So is he saying, I don't know about you? No, he knows everything about them. He knows that they're evildoers. He knows everything about them, but he doesn't know them. The knowing them is an intimate, as you said, an intimate relationship. But now we have a prefix. Before knowledge means before, before knowledge. I was in an intimate relationship, God would say, I was in an intimate relationship with my elect before they existed. Doesn't that blow your mind? I knew them before they existed. I was having a love relationship in my mind and my heart with the elect, by name even, before they even existed. And notice that foreknowledge precedes predestination. We're out of time, aren't we? All right. (laughs) God knows you, and then God decides your boundaries. And having decided what your boundaries are going to be, he then calls you into those boundaries. And part of that boundary that he calls you into is to have your sins forgiven. He calls you by the gospel to believe in Jesus and have your sins forgiven. And once your sins are forgiven, he calls you to be glorious, conformed to Christ. That's what he's, and everyone he foreknows ends up glorified. No one drops out. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Let me say it again in slightly different language. Everyone he foreknows, he predestines. Everyone he predestines, he calls. Everyone he calls, he justifies. And everyone he justifies, he glorifies. If that doesn't give you confidence to fight sin, I don't know what will. I mean, that's pretty confident. It's that he's not going to lose any of us. It's the very thing Jesus said. I'm not going to lose any of you, but I'll raise you up at the last day. It's pretty awesome. All right, we're out of time. So we almost finished Romans 8, but but we are out of time. Why don't we close in prayer? Brother Joey, would you mind doing that? Thank you. Thanks, brother. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.